Welcome to NAPREP Spotlight. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining us today. NAPREP Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Minority Arts and Education Fund. NAPREP Spotlight showcases citizens making positive contributions to their neighborhoods and our city. My guest today is Ms. Merle Johnson, retired Cleveland Metropolitan School District educator and the 2020 re-elected member of the Ohio State Board of Education for District 11, which covers Cuyahoga and Lake County. Upon graduating from Glenville High School, home of the Tarbletters, she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Kent State University and a Master's of Education degree from Cleveland State University. A phenomenal educator with 40-plus years of knowledge and experience, an activist, advocate, community champion, public servant, mentor, and host of her own radio show, It's About Justice. She has tirelessly given her time, support, and voice to issues that impact the lives of children, families, and educators. A public servant who authentically connects with everyone she meets. Ms. Johnson is active with numerous organizations and has received awards and recognition for her outstanding contributions to our community. Currently, she is a resident of the historic Shaker Square Buckeye neighborhood and a member of the Neighbor Up Network. I make everybody a member. Welcome to Neighbor Up Spotlight. It's so nice to have you with us today, Merle. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. (laughs) Me too. I am thrilled to have you here. So let's dive in. What inspired you to become an educator? Well, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was a teacher. And she would come home from school every day with these wonderful stories about what she called rascals in her class. (laughs) (laughs) We would, you know, and that's when folks actually sat at the dinner table and ate together. Right. So we would sit around the dinner table and she would, you know... (laughs) She was just, I'm still laughing because I still remember these stories. There's one story she told. There's <laughs> um, one of her little students, she taught music. And so one of her students had brought a play done to school. And so she saw it land somewhere and she picked it up and uh, she said, whose gun is this? And she said, one of her students, the biggest boy in the class said, that's my gun. <laughs> and so she turned around and said, well, you're not supposed to have it. But she just told that story and the way she told it. It was so funny. <laughs> and she worked so hard to make sure that her classroom was welcoming. Yes. You know, she would, she would have uh, very current uh, um, singers like Michael Jackson on her bulletin boards. And uh, she said her students would come by and, and kiss Michael Jackson on, <laughs> on her bulletin board. But she just told all these stories. And so and the other thing was I loved English. Ah. So... When you put that combination of me loving English and having this mom that told these wonderful stories, it just kind of led me into teaching. You know, I, I can relate because, you know, my mom was a Cleveland public school teacher for mommy taught for 43 years or something like that. Well, 30, okay. so, you know, a long, okay. long time. And she had lots of funny stories, too. So now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I never, ever heard mom complain about teaching. Yeah. No matter what the conditions were right. or whatever. Um, uh you know, matter of fact, she was she was teaching at at um, Stephen Howe okay. when 
Reverend Clunder was killed. I remember you know, that. that was, yes. Uh, she wasn't, uh, she was going to teach there or something, but anyway, Reverend Clunder was, was when they, when the uh, segregation was taking place right. in Cleveland. Right. And a school was being built mm-hmm. in an all black area instead of being built in an area where white and black could go. And Reverend Clunder stood in front of a tractor or behind it and he was killed. I remember and that, that was in the area where my mom was teaching. So, you know, I have a lot of memories from, from growing up and my mom being a fabulous teacher. Wow. One more memory, my brother and I would go to her <laughs> programs and she would have these little music programs. Yeah. And we would sit there and I would be so proud. And, you know, back in the day, students went to Severance Hall. That's Every right. Every student went to Severance Hall That's right. to hear a concert. That's right. And a lot of times my school and my mom's school would be going on the same day. <laughs> and I would go and say hi, and the students would say, that's your daughter! <laughs> and I would feel like a little celebrity. <laughs> what, school, uh, <laughs> what school did you go to? What school did you go to? I went to Miles Standish. Oh, I did it's, too, it's Michael. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I went to Miles okay. Standish in kin- kindergarten before we moved, yeah? Oh, and, and my so brother got did, something else in Yeah, my brother went to Miles Standish <laughs> and, and Empire in Glenville. Yeah? I went to Miles Standish Empire in Glenville. <laughs> Sure did. Amazing. Yes, indeed. It's a small world. Now, what's, mm-hmm. what's, what subjects did you teach? Uh, I know you said you taught English. Did you teach uh, any other subject? Yes, I taught, um, when I first started at East Tech, I taught, excuse me, English, oral communication, and drama. Wow. So I basically, uh, oral communication, you know, teaching students to be a, a public speaker. Yes. How to debate, how to debate um, that kind of thing. And I was a drama director, so I directed plays uh, at East Tech and at Charles Elliott, and I and I love that. Yeah, and, and I'm and I'm going to brag on you a little bit here, Merle, because you just. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, we were discussing before on air, I've known Merle a really long time. And she said, when I was a pup, (laughs) um, Merle is extremely, she's very, very talented and has an incredible singing voice. When I talk about you, Merle, I describe your voice. You have like a Broadway voice. And a, lot wow. of people, and a lot of people don't know that about you. And you're shy. But see, I remember when you used to, you would burst in the song, and I just would love that. <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm not shy. <laughs> don't, don't make your listeners think that. Okay. I'm, I'm All right. very, very far from shy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're a fabulous singer. I know that. Now, as Thank a, you. Matter of fact, I was on, I was on a Zoom call, Zoom call the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, someone said, you know, Merle's a, a singer. Merle, would you sing something? And I, I broke into Amazing Grace. All right, now. Okay, well, we may have time so, for something yeah, at the so end. Of... So I'm not shy. Okay, all right, well, we may, we may have time for a little something at the end of the interview. <laughs> I was not suggesting that. I just wanted to make sure you knew I wasn't shy. Okay, well, we got that. <laughs> Thank you for that correction. I do not mind being corrected. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I can see I'm loving this interview already. As an educator of 40-plus years, what are some of the issues you saw with students that you wanted to address? Well, I think the, uh, I thought about this long and hard. And, and you know, one of the issues that I saw um, was just, uh, just students not being with their families. You know, I had yeah. so many students who were in foster homes um, or who, you know, it, it was just not being able to have that connection with, with a, a family. Yeah. So that, that's why it became so much more important to me to develop 
really caring relationships um, with all of my students. Yeah. And and that was that was one of the main things. And and I wanted them to feel like our classroom was a community. So yes. I was really um, really determined to to develop a sense of community uh, within the classroom. So, so one of the things I did to try to build that community is we had something called good thing, bad thing, funny thing. Okay. And so every day uh, for, you know, five or 10 minutes, um, the students would have an opportunity to share a good thing, a bad thing, or a funny thing that had happened to them during the past week. And um, as a result of that sharing, one time I remember uh, I was able to find out that this young man had a little brother who was a baby, I think maybe three or four months old, and had a heart condition, had some heart issues. Yeah. And so he, was, he felt comfortable enough to be able to share that that was a bad thing, that his little brother had this heart condition. And then a couple of weeks later, he shared that his little brother had died. Oh, man. And... And but and I went to the funeral and his parents were so surprised um, to see me. But the reason I mentioned that is because that is why it's so important to build that sense of community within the classroom, because who knows where else he could have shared that. That's right. And he was he knew that he had a connection with me and with the students in the class that he had some support that he needed during that during that uh, troubling time. Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about your mom and you, and like, and like I said, my mom being a Cleveland public school teacher for a long time, too. They were, you know, you guys are old school teachers. You know, you really yeah. connected with your students. You know, my mother, yep. my mother yep. literally went to every student. This is before lunch program. She went to every student's home. She would have lunch, um, you know, and that just really makes a difference. A big time. difference. Yeah. So now why yeah, it, does. It, it makes such a big difference. So now why is ma- maintaining the public education system so important? And I'm going to actually finish the rest of this question. So it's why is maintaining public education so important and why is maintaining the public education system important for poor, low-income children and specifically children of color and particularly African-American children? Okay, I'm going to start with the first part. Gotcha. I think the, 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 the fact is that, um, you know, the, the, the late president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, I always remember this quote. He said, Public education is the glue that has held this country together. Yes. And to me, so that's the overall umbrella of why, to me, public education is so important. You know, everybody who comes here gets educated. You know, we accept everybody. Right. Um, and, you know, we do our best um, to, to educate all children. And I think it's important that we, um, we are so many children of color, for children, many children who are poor, schools are really the safe place for them. Yes, it is. They're the sa- and, and, you know, and you know when that really became a reality for a lot of people? When the pandemic hit. Absolutely. Because the first thing they said was, how are we going to feed the kids? Right. That was the first thing. They said, if we close schools, how are we going to feed the kids? So public education became even more important than it had already been because I saw folks scurrying around saying, okay, we can have them here. We can have them here. And, and they, as a matter of fact, they said that when the pandemic happened and the schools closed, they began to get fewer phone calls and fewer notices 
about children being abused. Wow. Because our teachers are the ones who look out for our kids so many times. You know, we're the ones who notice the, the scars or the bruises or right. the child is hungry or right. the child is, is smells. That's you right. Know? And, and so we're, we're the ones that say, hey, you know, what's going on? What's up? That's very. And so, you know, our public schools are so, have so many, they're so, are so important. So important. They really are. It's, that's very. You know, and just teaching students um, to good decision making, um, you know, providing the kinds of things that students often don't have anywhere else. If you love to, to sing, you know, before they decided to get rid of the arts and music because of testing, and we're going to talk about that later on. But, right. but you know, students who are, are athletes, for many of them, that's their way into college, through right. athletic scholarships. Uh, students who enjoy the arts or, or the music or, or acting or whatever, right. you know, public schools offer, hopefully in most cases, offer almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, Things change with funding and so forth, but but public schools are the places where where students can find what they need. Right, and they can and they can discover their talents and their gifts. Yeah, and what they yeah, want to do, yeah. and where they want to go in life. You know, and you develop yep. fr- and you develop friends for life. You know, yes, indeed, friends yes, for indeed. life. That it's just that social social aspect of of uh, school is so important. It's really important. Now we're going to pivot here to the. Board of Education, State Board of Education. So now, what does the Ohio State Board of Education do, and how many members are on the board? Okay, well, first of all, um, you already said that uh, my District 11, I represent uh, two-thirds of Cuyahoga County, one-third of Lake County. I represent 24 school districts. Okay. And so um, State Board of Education, there are 19 members, 11 are elected, and eight are appointed by the governor. So the main thing we do is we we do we uh, go over the rules. You know, there's Ohio Revised Code has all the rules for all the schools in the state of Ohio. Okay. And so we we do rule review every five years. They have to be reviewed. So we review the rules. Um, we deal with standards. We make recommendations to the legislature. Um, we also are the uh, last stop for people who are about to lose their license if they've allegedly done something they shouldn't have done. Okay. Uh, we are the, the, the group that, that makes a decision uh, on if the hearing officer is going to, if they're going to do what the hearing officer suggested or if we're going to do something different. So basically those cases come before us if someone has allegedly done something wrong and if they're about to lose their license. So we, we take care of those cases. Okay. And then we also hire or fire the state superintendent. Ah. And we, we happen to have an excellent state superintendent in the name of Paolo Di Maria. Okay. And he is really, really very, very good. That's good. That is good. Well, I, I, will, yeah. I will say, since you, you were first elected, and I, I, I will say that, you know, we looked you one at a wide margin of people voted for you. I think when you were first elected in 2016 and in 2020, the same thing again. And I will say, Merle, that really because of your presence there, especially in Cleveland, because you, you get out in the community before the COVID-19, you get out in the community and you engage with people. And you really have brought a lot of attention to the, you know, the Ohio State School Board, maybe, you know, where people may not have paid attention to before. 
because you do. Well, there are a lot of folks who didn't even know we had one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, so, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and, I, yeah. and, and I and I and I, you know, you may not take credit, but I'm definitely going to give you credit for raising the profile because you really make it a point to get out in the community, in the district, and uh, and engage with people and. Uh, and so, you know, people now are really paying attention to the state board, Ohio State Board of Education, and what they do. So, for instance, well, I appreciate that. That's Thank tr- you. Hey, that's that's true talk. That's real talk. So now, in July 2020, the board approved a resolution condemning hate speech and racism uh, by a vote of 12 to 5. And I was doing. Uh, I've got my little talking points here, and so um, actually, I, I'm not going to give the name, but some of your board members. Um, you know, questioned that it was moving too fast and if there was actually even racism in the classroom so or in schools. And um, I, this is just my own personal opinion. <laughs> I'm going to say, yes, there is. I experienced it in <laughs> going through school, K through 12. My parents had to come up many times. You know, I experienced it mm-hmm. when I went to Boston University. I experienced it as a parent with my daughter in, um, in, the, in the school systems. So what is mm-hmm. your position on this subject? Well, first of all, um, I think passing this resolution in July of 2020 is is my proudest moment on the board. Um, It's a resolution to condemn racism and to advance equity and opportunity for black students, indigenous students, and students of color. I was one of the 12 who voted in favor of it. Awesome. And um, this this resolution was really, it was prompted by by the murder of George Floyd. (sighs) And um, we felt like... Um, we just needed to do something to try to, you know, we have a local control state, which means that school districts rule themselves. So the state board cannot go into a school district and say, you will do this. Mm -hmm. But we felt there needed to be some guidance, some direction, uh, so that we could make sure that our children of color and indigenous students uh, and black students were being treated treated fairly. Yes, um, we did a strategic plan, and the theme of our strategic plan, almost on every other page, is equity. Yes, and so we wanted to make sure that people saw that the state board of education is about equity in the state of Ohio, and that's that's really you know what why we why we put it together. We talked about culturally responsive curriculum and teaching, which means that we're teaching the whole child. We're teaching curriculum that students can relate to, and we're also making sure that everything that we do in the classroom is relevant and that relates to their lives. It talks about the, uh, this, uh, the uh, disparities between uh, uh, suspensions and, and uh, uh, expulsions of children of color, how there are so many more uh, African-American boys, especially, and yes, girls yes. who are suspended and expelled uh, more than, than whites. Um, we talk about implicit bias, which is everybody has it. Everybody yeah. has it. And, and so often in schools, what looks like racism mm. is often implicit bias, mm-hmm. which means that these are things that we are affected by the world around us. So the important thing is for teachers to have implicit bias training so that you become, a, you become aware of what your biases are. Right. And you can begin to check them. Right. You know, so, the, so our resolution, is, let me just, I'm just going to read the um, preamble because I do. think it's really important. Very, very nice. It says, as our nation grapples with the hard truths of racism and inequality, 
We are listening with broken hearts and engaging with determined spirits. We acknowledge that Ohio's education system has not been immune to these problems. And while we earnestly strive to correct them, we have a great deal of work left to do. Now, you know who wrote that? You. Our state, our state <laughs> superintendent. Oh, wow. Okay. So that says a lot about Paulo De Maria that he wrote that preamble to yeah. our to our resolution. Well, I'm yeah, but I'm 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 very proud of it. As a matter of fact, um, the uh, League of Women Voters approached me about doing two programs on our resolution, and so they're going to be doing one program on February seventeenth at seven o'clock on Zoom. And if you go to the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland Facebook page, then you can call, pull up the event and you'll see it's there. So that's the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland Facebook page. The first event is on February 17th at 7 o'clock, and that will be three board members along with me, the four of us that actually developed this resolution. And so we'll be going through the resolution and, you know, explaining it, uh, uh, talking about some research. <clears throat> and then on February 24th, we will have a second program about the resolution. And for this one, they'll actually have uh, practitioners, superintendents there from districts who are actually doing racial justice work. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Rick, Rick Jackson will be the moderator on the 24th. Uh, Rick Jackson from Idea Stream. Yes. But those programs are going to be wonderful, and I'm encouraging your listeners to please, uh, please um, try to experience them because they are going to be good. Yeah, that's, it's it's it sounds it's very very important. Now, yes, what you were talking about, <clears throat> it kind of leads into this. I'm switching up questions again. And I, I I hope it doesn't sound repetitive, but what is okay? What is your opinion on the achievement gap? Because I really have my own opinion around this and the impact of racism in the classroom instruction, discipline and grading, because I, I just have to say this here when we're talking you know, about racism in the school and in the classroom, one of the conversations I've not heard is from, there are a lot of, uh, most teachers are wonderful. They do a great job. It's a t- difficult job. I've been an educator, but there clearly are teachers who are biased who are prejudiced and they bring that to the classroom and 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 I and this whole thing this whole thing about achievement gap to me kind of really underneath is that still um, goes to that idea that white people are intellectually um, black people are in, intellectually inferior and not as smart as white people so it, it, you know I just kind of want to get your feedback on this achievement gap and what you had well, what you think well, the achievement gap, you know, if you want to call it that, exists because of poverty and the barriers to to um, children of color and poor children being able to achieve the way we know they can. Mm-hmm. And and so when you talk about, I mean, let's face it, you know, white supremacy, you know, has been around since for 400 years. Absolutely. So when you get teachers in the classroom, there's nothing at the door that says you will drop your, your racism here at the door, or you will drop your white supremacist feelings here at the door. Um, you know, you're going to do it. And 80% of teachers in the, in the country are white. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important for us to 
in, encourage our, our young people of color to go into teaching. And yes. so often I hear them being discouraged and I just hate yes. that. Yes. But, um, you know, it, it's the bias, it's the racism, all of this. So what, that's why culturally responsive curriculum, when you train teachers mm-hmm. to, to, to teach so that students begin to know that we built this country and that we are worthy of respect and dignity, and then that begins to change the environment in the classroom. You know, and, and that makes students, gives them the coping skills and to know that, you know, they should be black and proud and nobody is going to make you feel any different. Right. But that's why when you, when you have, that's why wraparound services are so important. Uh, that's why trauma-informed uh, teaching strategies are so important. And I'll talk about those later on. Yeah. But we've got to do the kinds of things that are going to make it possible for our students to be successful, yeah. to make it possible for them to have the opportunities that they deserve. And, and so when you, when you have wraparound services where you're having health clinics in the schools and free legal systems and, and uh, dental clinics and uh, so forth and social workers and that kind of thing, and then you're able to take care of some of those barriers that, that are stopping our students from being as successful as possible. And, 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 and I just really, because this is, this is a, I just really have to say, and for those teachers out there who are aware that there are teachers who are not, because like I said, this is a conversation I've not heard and anybody step forward and say, yes, I know that this is existing. I know that this is happening. I've seen some of my colleagues. So if you've got, if there's teachers out there listening or you've got colleagues you know who are participating and not treating children fairly, speak up, say something, change Thank you. that atmosphere because I know I personally experienced it and it has a lasting, mm-hmm. lifelong impact on you. Mm-hmm. You know, I just have to share a personal story. My counselor, at high school, Shaker looked me in my face and told me, you know, you're not for your college material. You'll never make it. I've heard that so much from okay. some students in, in Shaker. That's terrible. Okay. I mean, I'm still, I hear that. I'm sorry to cut you off. That's okay, because but... I, got, I got more stories, too, <laughs> like that, okay? So, wow. Yeah. And it's not just Shaker school. Yeah, there it's are all other over, right. So we don't, they're not jumping on Shaker. Right, exactly. But it's just that I, I just hear this Um Wow. Well, for, well, for a long time, a lot of, uh, well, actually not in a long time, it's still an ongoing conversation with many of us who black students have graduated from Shaker that we're beginning to share our st- stories and have been sharing our stories for a long time. I can, just one more story. When I was in seventh grade, I transitioned from Ludlow to, um, to Woodbury and our English, we had an English teacher. I'm not going to mention her name. Um, she flunked every black student in every class that she had in seventh grade. We all had to go to summer school. Never will forget that. Nobody said anything to her or? Oh, I know parents said something. Now, as far as the administration, doubtful. So um, you just have numerous stories like that coming through school. So so those teachers out there who know that that's happening, speak up and uh, try to change the culture. And when students are telling you that something is happening in the classroom or there's something being said to them or they're being... one more story I have to share. Believe, believe, yeah, believe them. This is believe a, this is a them. I have to share this again because I was my senior year of Shaker. I was a uh, uh, humanities class. I wanted to do a paper on Miles Davis. The teacher told me, you know what? You can't do a paper on Miles Davis because Miles Davis hasn't done anything noteworthy in the area of music. I did the paper anyway. <laughs> wow. He gave me an F. Wow. My parents had to go up and have a talk and he changed my grade ah, to a D. So that D still remains on my final grades for my senior year when I graduated from Shaker Heights High School. 
So there's a million of those stories. And I saw I just needed to say that and put that out there because that conversation I've not had about people stepping up and saying, yes, we know this is happening and we need to come together as educators and do something about it. See, see here's, here's the thing. We know it's happening. And so we, we need to, first of all, this is why our parents need to be more engaged in what <clears throat> is happening in the school. Yes. That is so important. Yeah. And our principals as leaders in these buildings, they need to be held accountable. Yes, I agree. They I need agree. to be held accountable. I... And, and, and as you said, if a teacher knows another teacher is doing some stuff that, that shouldn't be happening, yes. then we have to hold each other accountable. You Absolutely. Know, so, and I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a union woman. Yes, you are. Uh, I was in, in director of community engagement for the Cleveland Teachers Union for 26 years. And so quite often when, when you're in, in an organization together, you feel like you can't really say something to somebody else, but that's not true. Right. You know, in order for us to make sure that our profession is seen mm-hmm. as, as a, a, a profession that is good for kids and it <laughs> is, then yeah. we have to hold each other yeah. accountable. That's right. That yeah. is, that's so important. That's true. That is true. And, and on a closing high note on, on this particular question, when I did get my letter of acceptance to Boston University, I went back to that counselor who told me I wasn't for your college material, and I made her read it. <laughs> and you went, na 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 No, actually, the last month Very of school, good. the last month Very of school, good. every time I saw her, I spoke to her and smiled and asked her how she was doing and tell her, have a nice day. <laughs> My she last had been there for a long yeah, time. Yeah, she had been there for quite because a long I time. Think, I think she's the same one that I've had. I've heard three three Shaker students within the last, I'll say within the last uh, year, yeah. have said that to me. Yeah, and I think somebody said that she 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 retired or something. Yeah, but um, yeah, that is that's um, that's terrible. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I that's I terrible. had I had to get that out. <laughs> Thank you for for allowing wow. me to do that. So now my next yeah, question but, is: But, but yes. we have to say yes. that a majority of the teachers are not like that, and and so I don't want to sound like we're saying you know oh, all what, teachers are like that. No, but but you but, want, but no, but th- th- that the but, same thing too. I'm keeping it real. I'm not I'm not saying mm-hmm. that teachers are, but I'm not going to not talk about that because it's for me yeah it, oh, no, it, we it's, need to keep yeah, it real i'm glad yeah. to keep it real yeah, it's a I subject matter i have never ever yeah. heard it, i've listened to so many things about education and the education gap and black children not doing well blah 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 and so i am uh, uh, uh i i think that was important because i've never heard anybody talk about what's really happening and so every time you know black students try to tell you what's happening people want to push back on it so i just think it's a subject matter that needs to be opened up and and like you said, we need to hold pe- people accountable. I mean, there's a majority. And I'm, and I'm glad you brought it up yeah, because yeah. It, it's just so important. There's a book written by uh, Bettina Love. I don't know if you've read it. Mm-hmm. Bettina L. Love. It's called We Want to Do More Than Survive, mm-hmm. Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Yeah. And in the book, she talks about spirit murdering. Yes. She talks about spirit murdering of yeah. of of black and brown children. And, and that's one of the things that we have to stay on top of. Absolutely. You know, our babies deserve to, to know that they are worthy. They, they, they deserve to be respected and cared for and nurtured and loved. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if, if, if I am aware or if somebody's aware of another teacher doing some spirit murdering, then they need to step up 
and, and, and say something to that teacher. And I want to mention another book, too, because I had the opportunity to meet her and be on a speaking panel. And I actually did some work with her when I was a substitute teacher. And that's Dr. Wanda Jean <clears throat> Green. And she wrote a book called And They Called It Public Education. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I know it's out of print. But I had her give me a copy. Well, I'm certainly familiar with Dr. Wanda Dream Green. Yes, but if you've not, yeah, so, but if you can, I actually have two copies of her book, and one of them is autographed. And it's called, and they called it Public Education. And she chronicled her 40 years of uh, working in the Cleveland public school system and everything that she went up against once, um, you know, Cleveland had to desegregate. It is a wow. fascinating book. And um, wow, yeah, it's a it's a great book, and and I I tried to I, I don't think I think it's out of print, but you know I'd be more than happy to you know share it with you, or make a copy because it's worth reading because she I'd be glad for you to do that. Yeah, because she yes. act, she actually gave a blueprint and discussed what's going on now, and she provides a okay. blueprint. It's a great book, and I could so I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna move on because I know <laughs> I keep talking forever. Okay, so now um, how important is it to have more African American? Uh, educators and particularly more African-American men as educators. And you, you just commented about, you know, having more students, but let's just talk about the importance of that. Yeah, students need to see themselves um, as teachers. Yes. And, and you know, only 2% of, of teachers in the country are black males. 2%. Wow. 2%. Yeah. And, and I'm a member of an organization called Metro CAPSI, uh, Cleveland Alliance of Black School Educators. Mm-hmm. And it's also a state organization, Ohio Alliance of Black School Educators, and it's a national alliance. And uh, I'm very proud to be a member of the local organization. The president is Dr. Robin Simmons. Okay. And one of our uh, uh, projects that we're focusing on is getting more black male teachers into the classroom. And so they're really um, going to be talking to some black males in high school. They're doing a video that they're going to use to promote the idea. And also there's an organization, there's something called Educators Rising, which is a a local uh, organization. And in some high schools, it's actually a class where we are encouraging our students, especially students of color, to become teachers. Yes. And Educators Rising is also a state organization and it's national. And Carol, they have a conference coming up next month, but at their national conference, well, this con- they, they have competitions. And so they compete in the writing of lesson plans. They oh, compete wow. in, uh, in work ethics. Like they ask questions like, what would you do if? Okay. Uh, they do TED Talks and they actually compete in the quality of their TED Talks. And it's just very exciting and not enough people know about it, but it's called Educators Rising. And my goal is to get the uh, organization into uh, more of my schools in my 24 districts. But it is so important for us to have um, African-American uh, teachers. If for no other reason, then research has shown that African-American students actually perform better in their classes when they have African-American teachers. That's very true. Achievement goes up. That's right. Because you know, and, and you know, you have somebody in the classroom who's really rooting for you and wants yeah, to see, and wants and, to see and, you do and, well. Yes. And, and, and in most cases, yes, you have someone in the class rooting for you. And I have to say, and I have to say this, that there are a number of white teachers who also root for our oh. African-American 
students, but it's so much easier to look up there and see that African-American teacher and say, I know for sure he or she is rooting for me. Yeah. So, so it, it makes a difference in achievement in them actually graduating uh, and students knowing there's somebody that they can actually go to and, and talk to. And, and, and in, in many cases, they will understand what the students are going through because so often that they have gone through it themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really, really important. It is. So now we're going to once again do another pivot. And um, can you talk about the CARES Act and the PPP program um, as, a re- as a result of the COVID-19 and the funding impact for Cleveland Public Schools? And I do have, like, so let me go to my, um, my notes here. I just wanted to uh, give the CARES Act as an acronym, and the, uh, it really stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, and the PPP is a Paycheck Protection Program Act. So um, Yes. And, you know, so I saw the question there, and I'm not an expert on, on the CARES Act as far as federal dollars coming into our schools. Mm-hmm. I know that we, we got, a, a, you know, millions of dollars for the CARES Act. It was um, divided among school schools. And there are schools that are actually benefiting from these dollars yes. um, as far as being able to, um, you know, right now, kids want to go back to school. And mm-hmm. so the CARES Act is really making it possible for them to, um, have the petitions between the desks or get the masks for the students or to be able to uh, go from the kinds of seats that they have to seats that will be able to social distance. Um, so the CARES, it's really been helpful. I can't tell you, you know, like what, well, how much it was or what, what percentage school districts got, yeah, but I, I can say actually, that it was a welcome welcome uh, dollars for our yeah, school districts. Actually, I've got the, the got it about right here said for the, um, for the uh, uh, charter schools, they received eight hundred and seventeen dollars per person, and public school pupils got one hundred and fifty dollars per student. Mm-hmm. For uh, uh, under that uh, under that act, which I, when I read that, I was like, "Whoa!" Well, um, it's going to be different now that we have a different president. Yeah, I was like, Geez. because Betsy Betsy DeVos was making those decisions, and. Um, Matter of fact, they were putting they were putting dollars into <clears throat> private schools that were meant for Title One students, um, and so they actually had to look at trying to get some of that money back. Title One meaning students that were low income, yeah. and uh, the money was not being distributed the way it should have been. So now that we have a president who is going to be more fair yeah. to uh, public schools. I think that um, we will see some changes in that. It will be a lot different. It's just, it's just, uh, it's a breath of fresh air. Yes, <laughs> it really, it really, really is. Truly, it really is. Okay. <laughs> so now, um, can you talk about? Let's talk about House Bill um, three hundred five and Senate Bill three seventy six, and the funding for schools uh, in low income communities, low income communities versus affluent communities, uh, the Fair School Funding Act. Yes. Now, um, I was so excited about that <laughs> bill. Um, uh, <clears throat> Representatives Cup and Patterson, um, who had worked on this bill at, for at least three or four years, they reached out to people. They did a bunch of research. You know, let me just give you a quick a quick uh, history lesson, okay. so we'll see why this this made sense. Okay. Um, in 1991. Uh, a young man named Nathan DeRolf 
who who went to uh, high went to high school in in Perry County, and his schools were not <clears throat> excuse me, his school was not what it was supposed to be, as we know many of our schools aren't. And so uh, there's a man named William Phyllis. He's the head of the Coalition for Equity and Adequacy for School Funding. Uh, he, along with a number of other school districts, rural and urban and suburban, were all in this together, decided to, to file a lawsuit because the Ohio Constitution says that we will have a thorough and efficient system of schools for Ohio's children. And so the lawsuit said that that's not happening, so it's a violation of the Constitution. Right. So the state fought back and, and appealed and everything, and in 1997, <clears throat> the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that the way Ohio funds its schools is indeed unconstitutional because of the over-reliance on property taxes. Right. So that means if a child is living in a school district that has rich, wealthy property, high wealth property, they're going to have more resources than students who attend school in property poor districts, which means that their quality of their education is determined by the zip code. Right. So the Ohio Supreme Court said, uh-uh, that's not cool. And so they came back, the Ohio Supreme Court came back in 2000, 2001, and 2002, and ruled the same thing because the state had not tried to change it. Right. And so, unfortunately, in 2002, there was an election, and the the bodies changed on the Ohio Supreme Court, and so the case was basically dropped. But the only thing that did happen as a result of that is um, the money was provided by the state for districts to build new buildings or to refurbish their buildings. Because you know what, Carol, in yeah. 1996, and I always remember this, this uh, stat, in 1996, the General Accounting Office said that Ohio was number one in the country in the amount of tax dollars that go into private schools. Wow. And number 50 in the country in the conditions of its public school buildings. Yes. How's that for a stat? Yeah. It, it, and I, and, so and the, yeah, I'm sorry. I was, I was just thinking about so the, some of the schools so the, that I su subbed in and what they looked like. So yeah. yeah, 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 big holes in the wall oh. and everything. Oh yeah. And so the state did provide a possibility for in 2002 for schools to be able to have a bond issue where the school had to pay a third of the money and the uh, state would pay two thirds of the money. And so you were able, and we still still have districts that are using that money. Uh, to build new buildings. But as far as changing how schools are funded through property taxes, the legislature did not touch it. Yeah. And so House Bill 305 was the first, well, really the second time, because Ted, Governor Ted, Ted Strickland tried to deal with this in, in 2010, but mm -hmm. he lost his election. And so everything that he had put together, when Casey came in, it just went away. He did yeah. away with it. Yeah. So, so this was an opportunity for school funding to be based on how much it actually costs to educate a child. Right. Because right now the state just has a random number. Right. Okay. We'll send the district $6,000 per child. It's not figured out yeah. scientifically right. or intelligently right. or anything. Right. And so 305 actually said we're going to determine what it costs to educate a child. They, they looked at everything, 
special needs. They looked at classes, teachers. They put everything into the formula on how much it would cost. Right. And the other thing that I really love about 305, and I'm saying loved because it's, it died in this, on December 31st, but it is being reintroduced. Okay, so that's right. good news. Right. But the, the, the thing I really liked about 305 is that it funded charter schools and vouchers directly from the state. Right. Because right now, charter schools and vouchers are funded by taking money from school districts. From public schools. And from public school districts, right. yes. And so 305 also said charter schools and vouchers will now be funded directly from the state so that we are not taking money away from the neediest children. Um, and so, and the other thing it did was it addressed the property tax issue by, <coughs> excuse me, by doing what is was a 60-40. So instead of just looking at property taxes, uh, I'll give you an example. Richmond, Richmond Heights School District. They have a property-rich district, but they have low-income children. Mm -hmm. And so the, the state was sending them money based on their property-rich school district, so Richmond Heights wasn't getting enough money to run, the, to run the district. Okay. So now what 305 did was it looked at 60% property tax and 40% what the income of the families that attend the district was. Ah. And that way you can put together a formula that addresses the needs of the school district. So that's how they address the property tax um, issue that the Ohio Supreme Court had ruled on. Am I making this clear? Oh, listen. I, this oh, oh, no, listen, absolutely. <laughs> because truthfully, I, these, <laughs> like I said, I do my homework. So you have covered, yeah. uh, these are my talking, you covered everything that I was, that I'd unearthed in my research. You know, okay, uh, and okay. Uh, and I think it's just <laughs> so, so to me, those are the most important things yeah, of three hundred five and the Senate bill. Yeah, but unfortunately, the house the house passed it like eighty nine to seven, and the Senate said no, we're not going to pass it. Yeah, that's what I got. And to. and so the bill died December thirty first, but it is being reintroduced. Um, last week, I believe it was reintroduced. It has a different number, of course. Yeah, but um, you know, Cup Representative Cup one of the authors of this bill is the speaker of the house now. Yes. So that's the, that's the good news. Okay. So we will see. Um, and I was told that there's going to be a big campaign with the Ohio education association, the Ohio Federation of teachers and some other groups that are really going to be pushing to try to get this thing put into the budget. Yeah. Cause right now they are in the process of looking at the budget. And I, and I really, I, I, this is such an important subject, and I really want to encourage our listeners to, to look up and read about House Bill 305 and Senate Bill 376. We really, need, we really need to know and understand what this is all about and how it impacts yeah, now, our school system. For now, real. they won't have those numbers anymore. Yeah. So if people look them up, they need to find, I don't know what the number is right now, but they also need to follow these things on the Ohio channel. Okay. <laughs> Um, where you can actually watch the hearings mm -hmm. and the committees and so forth and stay on top of what the legislature is doing. Because that's one of the problems, is that we don't have enough people actually paying attention to what the legislature is doing. Yes. So they, they basically do what they want. Right. And, um, and so we have to, you know, because we are the ones that have to look out for our black kids, okay? Yes. We have to look out for our black kids. We cannot expect somebody else to do it for us. Yes. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I ran for the state board, to look out for our black kids. 
and and that's why with this resolution, I am just pushing it everywhere I go. Uh, that's why when the League of Women Voters came to me and said we want to do something, I said, okay, let's do it. Uh, we have some districts doing some wonderful racial justice work, and it's very exciting. And a lot of them were, were motivated by the passing of our, our resolution, so I'm really glad about that. And, and and I will say that's I mean that's how I found the information. I just Googled what what is um, uh, House Bill three hundred five and Senate Bill three seventy six, and it popped right up. So I was able. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, it'll was, come up. Yeah, I was yeah, able yeah. to get a lot of really good information in preparation for this interview. Now let's we're gonna switch to um, you know tell us about uh, how you got trauma informed teaching and explain what that is recognized by the Integrated Student Support Committee and why this is important. Oh, you really did do your homework. Yes, Go ahead, I did. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so very much. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first of all, um, I am a trainer in, in trauma-informed um, teaching strategies. I was trained by a lady named Barbara Oberg, who was a child trauma consultant. I met her years ago through the Cleveland School District, and I said, I need to be trained because I want to implement this stuff in my classroom. I'm drinking some water because my right. throat was getting dry. That's all right. <clears throat> Excuse me, everybody. <laughs> um, so trauma, um, first of all, I got it recognized by the Integrated Students Support Committee because when I was elected back in 2016, the first thing I started talking about to the state board was trauma-informed teaching strategies. And I actually did a tutorial for the state board in 2000, the September of 2017. Uh, and I said, it's the missing piece in education reform. So <clears throat> when, when a child is born, um, <clears throat> his or her ability to attach to a parent or a caregiver is really, really important because that builds resilience in the child. And when a child is not able to attach or to be held or cuddled or kissed by a parent or a caregiver, then that child begins to experience a sense of shame. And, and when that sense of shame uh, starts to, to become a problem and when there's negative things going on, because, you know, when a parent is not nurturing the child, there's usually something else going on. Yeah. And it creates that trauma, which affects the brain. Because when you talk about the, the brain stem or the midbrain, that's where the fight or flight area of the brain is, the, the area that actually protects the brain. Because the brain is really there to protect you. I mean, that's what the purpose of the brain is, just to, to protect us. And when that part of the brain is uh, affected because there's so much trauma or, or negative things going on, then that's the kind of brain that, be, that's the part of the brain that becomes dominant because the brain is what's called use dependent. Whatever part you use the most, that's the part that's going to be dominant. Okay. So when children experience trauma when they're babies, that's when the brain is actually being organized. By the time you're five years old, 90% of your brain is, is done, <laughs> you know? Okay. Now it's still, flexible and, and can still be altered by, by the time you get in your 20s. It's still being, being it can be affected. Um, but it's basically being organized up until the age of five. 
And so when, when a child experiences trauma a lot, especially when they're babies and when they're little, then um, it begins to affect their ability to self-regulate and, and to retain information. Because the, the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex, it doesn't get used when your brain is busy trying to protect you. Right. It's like the example I heard, which I love, is that if you're being chased by a bear, you're not going to stop and try to figure out what two plus two is. <laughs> no, you're not. Okay. No, you're not. So that's, that's the same way the brain works. Right. That you're, if you're always experiencing trauma, you don't have your mom, your mom's not right. holding you, and yeah. there's all kinds of noise and strange things going on, right. or you're just neglected, Yes. Um, then that, that part that protects you, that's called the amygdala, that part becomes dominant. And, and your prefrontal cortex just kind of doesn't get used much. And so when children get to school and they're not able to sit still, they're angry all, they appear to be angry all the time because it's really not anger. It's usually fear or shame. Um, They, they, you know, they can't learn the information. As soon as a teacher says something to them, they jump up and want to holler. A child looks at them funny and they start fighting. It's because they're always in panic mode Whoa. that part of their brain is always agitated yes and and so what i do is teachers it's really important for teachers to learn how how to teach in an environment where trauma is is it's being experienced by a majority of the students and now with the pandemic carol yeah. everybody's gonna be <laughs> we're all traumatized trauma. right the yes. kids and, and the grown-ups. Uh, that's right. Everybody's traumatized. That is so true. Yeah. Yes. And so that's why when I do the training, I also talk about the importance of self-care for the adults. Yes. Because a traumatized adult cannot deal with a traumatized child. Right. Well, which But, we... you know, trauma, so I, so I talk about trauma-sensitive schools. Mm-hmm. And that's where a child, the student feels safe. They feel welcome. They feel supported. It really matches the whole child definition in our strategic plan. Mm-hmm. A whole child, when, you, when you're teaching the whole child, that means that child is safe, they're healthy, they're supported, they're challenged, and they're engaged in what's going on in the classroom. Well, you know what? This is, this is so important, this subject, because I'm, I'm going to just briefly mention an, an, another organization because um, I, I was a fellow briefly in this program and I walked away. I, I was a, a PEP program fellow in 1986. Oh, okay. Okay. And um, I, I walked away from the program because of um, I was not in agreement with a certain things. But I will tell you what was, when you're talking about what you, what you just talked about, trauma-informed teaching, and what mm-hmm. I saw, and I know it still exists, but I'm just going to share with you what was handed to us in 1986. And, uh, and there's some other things. And then I decided to part company in uh, December of 1986. And we were handed a piece of paper that said, due to lower class street corner black male behavior and the fact that it's permeated our urban and rural school systems is therefore the downfall of our urban and rural school systems. And I cannot. Wait, 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 yes. wait. You're going too fast. Uh, 
Do, say it, read it again. Do I'm I'm giving this from memory because I never forgot this when oh. this was handed to us in I our Mac. You were and, reading something. No, no, no. Okay. I, this was it, this has been burned in my memory since 1986 when this was handed to us in our master thesis class, and certain things did not want wow. to be discussed. And then I challenged the founder, actually of the program. I challenged the founder, and we went at it for 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 about an hour before she screamed at me. She didn't want to talk to me anymore. But she well, passed, say that again. What you just said. She passed out. This no, of, no, the part about yeah. due to yeah, that's what I'm going to say. This was give this was handed okay. out to us on a piece of paper in our master thesis class, and it stated the following: due to lower class street corner black male behavior and the fact that it has permeated our urban and rural school systems, it is therefore the downfall of our urban and rural school systems. And this was in 1986, and so by December they're not like that now. Yeah, well, by December 1986, I had left the program, but that in, in you okay. talking about trauma-informed education and what what I saw at that time, um, that's what it reminded mm-hmm. me of. And once again, I'm I'm just you know keeping it real, <laughs> you know, in terms yeah. of, 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 yeah. of what's out but here. They're, they're and, not like that now. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because yeah. uh, somebody from PEP who does a lot of um, speeches, presentations yeah. on trauma yeah. is her name is Habiba Grimes, mm. and she's with PEP and and just the sister is bad. She she just really knows all the stuff and she always does she speaks truth to power as far as what should be happening with our black kids. So I know that that they're not like that anymore. Well, and that's, that's, I'm sorry you had that experience. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It was 1980. That was 1986 in the beginning of the program. Yeah, it was, you know, and I was outspoken wow. then. <laughs> wow. Was, was, but listen, yeah. the, part, the other part of the question was yes. how did I get it? Um, to become a part of the Correct. integrated students, uh, Integrated Student Support Committee, because I have a big mouth, <laughs> and and <laughs> I, because like, like I said, like I get a editorial in 2017, yeah, and I just kept talking trauma, 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 right? And when it was time for us to pass the, the social emotional standards, yes, because you know when you talk about social and emotional, all that is just how the child feels and how they're just the, everything about who they are in the classroom. Yeah. And that's a very important part of our strategic plan. Matter of fact, social emotion is on the same level in our strategic plan as academics. Okay. As it should be. You know, it used to be an, a- used to be an afterthought. Right. Okay? Right. But it's on the same level as academics in our strategic plan. But mm-hmm. when it was time for my committee, Inter- integrated student supports to pass the social emotional standards, um, I said to them, uh, you're talking about being able to teach these standards to students. If they are traumatized, they are not going to be able to learn these standards until you deal with their trauma. And so I told the, the committee, I said, I won't vote for these unless you include a section in the uh, website where you talk about the standards. You have to include a section on trauma informed teaching and they put it in there and then i voted for them well i so that's how i got in there well we appreciate your advocacy it absolutely (laughs) totally now you host a weekly radio show called it's about justice so what inspired the show how long has it been on the air and how can people find you well this is this is interesting um it's it's I started the show in 2000, January of 2009. And I, a friend of mine, uh, Justin, who teaches in Cleveland Heights, 
he had a show on, on WRUW. And I have always been an advocate for public education, and I wanted an opportunity to have a, a bigger voice, a voice that would be heard by a lot of people supporting public, public education. And I also wanted people to see that our schools have wonderful students, so I wanted to give students an opportunity to be on the air. And so I got the show in 2009, and everything was fine until COVID hit. And so when COVID-19 entered the picture, uh, we weren't allowed to be in the station. And so now every week uh, I send a recording of whatever I want to be on the show. Uh, most of the time I, I might use a city club. Uh, city club has been doing some wonderful stuff around uh, COVID. They've been doing a lot of um, programs that relate directly to what's going on with the pandemic. Yeah, they really have. And so I... Yeah, so I send a recording to the station, and there's somebody that's able to put it on at 1 o'clock every Saturday at 1 o'clock. Okay. I'm on there, but I'm not in the station. So this, this, it's still a wonderful show. I still have good programs. <laughs> yes, you um, do. You're just not going to hear my voice. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. you know, enough, enough people get the vaccine, and this thing winds down, and yeah. it's safe for me to go back in the station. I am so looking forward to getting back in there. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I have elected officials. I have community people. If somebody tells me they're doing something great in the community, uh, I'll put them on. I put students on. And I have music that matches the theme of whatever my show is going to be about. Oh, nice. And so that's what I really have fun finding songs to, to go along with whatever my interview is going to be about. So it's the show still good every Saturday, one o'clock, ninety one point one FM. All right. W R U W. All right. Now the listeners out there, you make sure you tune in. Now please do and, it, and know that Merle will be back. <laughs> <laughs> my voice my voice will be back. <laughs> now, during your career you've been an inspiration and a mentor to students and teachers. Tell us about these programs that you were instrumental in creating, like the Educational Research Program, the Cultural Competency, and Winning Against Violence. Violence. Environment Okay. Um, so those programs, the, the WAVE program, Winning Against Violent Environments, I didn't create that, but I helped train students in that. It's a program that was started by Carol Close, okay. who is a um, wonderful, she was a wonderful teacher. The program went national. But it really um, <clears throat> trains students to mediate their peers when they are having uh, co conflicts. And um, it's a way for students to reach their own decisions as to how they're going to solve whatever conflict they have. It's, it's, very, it's, it's a restorative justice uh, program. Yes. And restorative justice really goes along with a trauma-sensitive school. Right. So when you have a trauma-sensitive school, you don't have kids being thrown out of class every few minutes. You don't have them being suspended and expelled and right. all this kind of stuff because teachers are able to deal with students on a level that they can understand. Yes. When, I, when I do my training, Carol, <clears throat> I, went, I went to a national conference on creating trauma-sensitive schools in D.C. a few years ago, and I got the best ideas. So whenever I do a training... I give a Q-tip to everybody who walks in the door. Mm -hmm. And the Q-tip means quit taking it personally. 
<laughs> and when teachers learn that if a student goes off, when I got trained right. and students would like cuss me out or right. whatever, right. you know, I knew they weren't really cussing me out, right. but they were traumatized. Right. And so I didn't sit down and write a referral or throw them out. I say, you go have a seat, relax. And I'll yes. talk to you later. And th- Carol, they would almost always come back and apologize. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes they would have tears in their eyes. Yes. And I would tell them, you know, I understand you're going through some stuff, so it's okay. Yes. But that's what the, developing the relationships with the students, that's why they're so important, so that you're not writing a referral every few seconds right. when they look at you funny. Right. Um, and so, so, so the, I brought that up because restorative justice is a way to deal with discipline in a way that's not punitive, but it, it helps to create a community where kids can sit down, talk out their problems, and then they can all come back into the community. Yes. Instead of being thrown out every other day. Exactly. Um, so anyway, the, the WAVE program is a form of restorative justice. That's really what it is. And then I also, I, now I didn't create that. That was Carol Close. Okay. But I did create a um, workshop on cultural competence. And that's when, that's a form of culturally responsive teaching where you respect and appreciate and understand the cultures of your students. And you realize that if I'm going to be successful with, with these students, they have to know who I am and I have to know who they are. Right. And, um, and so the way I created the workshop is a really a book, wonderful book called Other People's Children by Lisa Delpit. And she said we should be teaching other people's children like they're our children. Absolutely. And, um, and so I put together some quotes from Lisa's book and I would have teachers come in and break into groups and they had to respond to different questions. And then I would show them Lisa Delpit's quote on that same subject. And one of the quotes that really caused teachers to, to reflect was one that um, it said, what happens when you have a, a clash between home culture and school culture? And the response said that the teacher is the stranger in the classroom and the teacher has to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really, really important. So I, I developed that. And it's funny because there are teachers now who have become principals who have said to me, Merle, I remember that workshop that really helped. Thank you very much. Yes. And then the other one you mentioned was educational research and dissemination. And that was a, a program based on research in classroom, successful classroom management. And that was developed by my national organization, the American Federation of Teachers. Okay. And basically, I was able to get that into uh, a con- the contract, Cleveland Teachers Union contract. We negotiated it so that all new teachers had to go through that program. I think since then, it's, it's no longer in the contract. But it's really an excellent program that helps teachers learn how to be effective in working with their students. And one of the things that is said is if you have a class, a lesson that students are really interested in and engaged in, you don't have to worry about misbehavior. Right. That's very true. And it's so true. <laughs> right. It is. So if you're, if you're doing some culturally responsive teach, teaching yes. and the students can really, and, and you have some culturally responsive curriculum and the students are learning about who they are yes. and they're not learning about all this European whitewash stuff saying, you know, uh, y'all were just slaves and y'all didn't do anything else. Um, 
when you have a curriculum that tells the truth about about American history and how we're the reason this country is built, uh, then kids are going to be engaged and excited. And they're not going to be in there messing around. Right. Uh, and so to me, that's the most important part of classroom management. And that's, that's right. what I would teach in, in, in that educational research and dissemination. It was shortened to be called ERNB. Wow. That's wonderful, Merle. Now, yeah, and 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 then one more thing. There was another went, part of went. that. Uh, um, I think one of the most effective, one of the most effective uh, uh, segments of that workshop of ER and D was we would have five columns. We would give everybody a, a, a worksheet that had five columns on it, and the first column was individual. The second column was family. Third column was school. The fourth column was community, and the fifth column was society. And so we would have the teachers get in groups, and they had to write in each of the squares in the columns what are some issues that students experience that may have an effect on their learning. And so in the first column, it might be, you know, low self-esteem. It might be, you know, they can't read or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then in the family column, it might be incarcerated parents might be parents are divorced. In the school column, it might be class sizes too large, uh, not enough books. Then in the, in, the, uh, society, in the community column, it might be, you know, gangs are, are, are a problem. It might be drugs. And then in the society column, that's where we had all the isms, you know, racism, mm -hmm. sexism, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so after teachers had worked in their groups and had tried to fill up these columns, we would go through what they put, and then I would ask them the question that was the key for the whole activity. I'd say, what is the column that we have the most control over? Mm. And, they would, and they would say, the school column. I would say, right. So when you go home, you know, um, crying and, and yelling at your spouse and being <laughs> mean to your kids and staying awake all night because you're worried about your students... Think about what we actually have control over. Yes. And let's try to make our schools the best schools they can be. Wow. So that was, that was a real, I really, I love doing that activity because it, the teachers would just have these, these looks on their faces like, wow. Yeah, it's an eye opener. That makes like, like, like they were exhaling, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to stop worrying about stuff I can't. I love my kids, but I cannot change what's going on in their lives, but I can make these schools the best they can be so they'll know they can make their dreams come true. Exactly. That is, that, that is exactly yeah. the truth. Yeah. Now, yep. now let's, let's talk about your platform since you've been reelected to uh, uh, the mm -hmm. Ohio State Board of Education. So what are your hopes moving forward for your second term? Um, I'm, I'm going to be focused on uh, getting rid of standardized testing because, see, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we have these inequities in the state of Ohio, it makes no sense to do these standardized tests because you always know how they're going to turn out. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a quote that I read from a guy named Jesse Hagopian who teaches in Seattle. He said, these standardized tests, they do not measure intelligence. They measure wealth. Ah. And so they don't, they're not going to really tell you what's going on. Uh, you know, we just need to find some other creative ways to evaluate and measure what our, what our students are doing and what our, what our schools are doing. And standardized tests is just not the way to do it. Now, 
a, it's a book called The Testing Charade. <laughs> and in it, the, the, the gentleman uh, talks about testing. And he says, it's not the testing that's the problem. It's how you use the test. Mm-hmm. And in Ohio, they use the test to punish. They use the test to take over school districts. Ah. They use the test to, to, to give you bad report cards so that people don't want to move into your community because mm-hmm. they think the schools are horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, our tests are not just not used because when, the takes, when they take the test, the results come out so late that teachers are not able to use them to have any impact on their teaching. And so testing in Ohio and in this country is not, is just not what it should be. And so I, I do want to focus on trying to improve or finding some more creative ways to, to evaluate. I just had a meeting before your meeting mm-hmm. on the, on the state report card. Okay. And trying to change the state report card so that instead of ba- being based on how you do on a test, it begins to do what Shaker Heights has called it, it begins to measure what matters. Okay. And, and um, you know, our tests, our report cards should be measuring equity. They should be seeing how equitable is your school? What kind of activities do you have for your students? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind, of, what kind of professional development are you doing for your teachers? Mm-hmm. Are you doing implicit bias training? Are you doing trauma-informed strategies? Um, and so that's one of my parts of my platform is looking at that. And the other thing is just, advocating for our public schools and trying to and trying to do something around charters and vouchers to keep them from destroying our public schools because yeah. that's a national goal is for public education to be dismantled yes that is a public uh goal of the American Legislative Exchange Council wow. which is something else I want your listeners to look up okay uh ALEC for short, A-L-E-C. Oh, yes. I'm very familiar with the acronym. Okay. Very familiar well, with the Well, that's the American Legislative Exchange Council. Yeah, with a, very a group familiar. of about 2,000 right-wing uh, people who want to privatize everything. Yes. Um, they're the ones that brought you Stand Your Ground, which got uh, Trayvon Martin killed. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that bring you the charter and voucher legislation. They brought us Senate Bill 5, I think, in 2011, where we almost lost the collective bargaining. And we got out there and rallied like crazy and won that fight. Mm. Um, and so what they do is they have dues-paying members in every state. Mm-hmm. And ALEC writes model legislation. Yes. They send it to the states, and the legislators take it. Sometimes they don't, they don't even change the words. They don't even, they don't even take the name of ALEC off the legislation. Wow. They just move it the way they get it. Wow. And so Alec wants to privatize, you know, the prisons. I love Biden's thing about not dealing with the private prisons. Right. I'm so excited by Biden winning. Um, But they want to privatize public education. And that's why they keep moving more and more toward charter schools and vouchers. Yes. So that's my platform is advocate for public schools to try to uh, change the testing system so that's fair and to, to look out for our black kids. Well, you know, which, which this next question should be very easy to answer, and that's why do you enjoy being a board member? <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoy being a board member because it gives me a, a much bigger voice to advocate for public education. 
Uh, also, because they they listen, the members listen to me mm-hmm. um, because I've had the 40 years of teaching experience. And um, I, I just enjoy being a part of making sure that our schools are the best they can be in the state of Ohio. And, I love having direct impact on that. And, and you know, and you're just you're still full of fire. You know, and and you can hear it. You're full of fire. You love what you do. You've always been out here speaking up for for people. So, I, you know, I just um, I'm excited about you being a board member, too, Merle. I'm serious. And 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 I'm happy that you are there. So now what? I appreciate that. Well, hey, listen, you know, I mean that. And as I said, I was going to tell you, I always say this, you know, I love you, Merle. (laughs) You know, I do. I love you, too, Carol. (laughs) You know it for telling you that for a long time. So now, I know, I know. <laughs> so, like, what advice do you have for young people who are considering a career in education and public service? Do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Do it. Yeah. We we need you know we need yeah. teachers um we need teachers so badly yes. uh you know there's a program out there and people are gonna somebody out there is gonna be mad at me because I said this but <laughs> you know we have something called Teach for America yes. And Teach for America is where <laughs> students who have graduated with a degree in anything get trained for five weeks to become teachers in urban school districts. And first of all, to me, it's such an insult insult to the profession of teaching. Mm. And granted, there are some young people, you know, they've said, that, you know, we're, we're really good teachers. We're better teachers than the veteran teachers. And I'm mm. saying, excuse me, I beg your pardon. But... <laughs> Um, and, and when you read the background of Teach for America, it started because of charter schools. Yeah. Because they wanted to make sure that they could fill these charter schools yeah. with, with, with teachers. Yeah. And to, to put somebody through five weeks of, of training and, and put them, and they don't go to any of the schools but urban schools. Yeah. That's where they put them. And, 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 and I, I'm, I'm a, uh, I don't mean to cut you off here, but I'm a little appalled. Teaching, teaching is challenging. It's challenging. And, 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 I'm, and uh, I just want to say, Merle, I, I, was a, I, I did not know that they only had five weeks of training. So I'm a tad, five weeks. I'm a tad appalled. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and people will, you know, we have Teach for America teachers who have been, who have been, um, uh, nominated and appointed or, or elected or whatever they do, uh, national teachers of the year and all that. And that's fine. You know, and, and that's okay. I mean, you know, people are creative. They get yeah. into a classroom, they do great things, but I just feel that teachers need to have a teaching degree like everybody else. Yeah. But now it's become, and they even have, now they have principals can, can, uh, you know, get training for a year and they become principals. Wow. Um, it's just, it's just the whole profession is just being watered down and they don't water down, you know, they don't, they don't put doctors in front of folks who have had five weeks of training. And, and, you know, and, I, and I just don't think it's right, but that's my opinion. And I guess Teach for America is pretty popular in some, in some environments. So uh, I just don't care for it. Yeah, and and I will say too, you know, when you said the training for charter <clears throat> schools would have, you know, it's, you know, it, it's it's about money, money driven. Yeah, you know. Yep. And and I just follow the money. Yeah, follow. It's money driven. Yeah, I looked at um um, I googled Teach for America one time, and when I went to their page, it was a big old picture of Walmart. Wow. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, they have the Walton money. And, you know, the Waltons are out there to privatize everything. So you just follow the money and you see what an organization is about. Yes. Like I said, you know, I always say you got to stay informed all the time. Yeah. You really, really do. Yep. You know. That's why I don't go to, don't go to Walmart because they're not about doing what's fair for workers. Um, when, when you uh, first get a job at Walmart, they give you, in your packet, your, your beginner's packet, mm-hmm. they give you instructions on how to sign up for food stamps. Wow. And Walmart is, is the richest. I don't know if, if, the, if the Amazon is, is still the richest, but Walmart is, is the richest country of uh, business in the, in the world. Wow. So they have plenty, plenty of money to, to pay people a living wage. Wow. And they don't do it. So um, I just, you know, I, just, I don't go in there. But the reason I mention that is because it's the Walton family, the Walmart money that is, is funding Teach for America, along with the Koch brothers and, and all those folks. Yeah. A lot of charter schools are fund, funded by people who have a lot of money. A yep. lot of money. Now, yep. we're going to get to your signature color. How did purple become your signature color? Because everybody knows that purple is Miss Johnson's favorite color. I have it on now. As a I know of you fact. do. I don't even um, have to see you. <laughs> I wear it every day. I, I didn't always wear it every day. Well, you but I've, I've worn it a lot. Yeah. Um, but now I wear it every day. It makes me happy. But it's very my it's a regal memory, color. My Huh, what you say? It's a very regal color. It, it's a gorgeous color. Yeah. My earliest memory is in sixth grade when I dyed my tennis shoes purple and my mom's washing machine with some writ dye. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, she, she, wasn't, she wasn't upset or nothing. She, she knew I liked purple. Yeah. But I was the only person in my gym class with purple tennis shoes in the sixth grade. I was just so proud. <laughs> and, and so then when I got to Kent, um, you know, that's when it got, it, it was really popular. The, the purple suede became very popular. Yeah. And so I was, I had this beautiful uh, purse that was suede and it had fringe that Uh-oh. went all the way down to the ground. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Okay. And boy, did I love that purse. But, you know, I just, I just, I'm just in love with purple. I, I only write with purple ink. Wow. And so when I was teaching, the students knew they would never see a red mark on their paper. They would always see purple on their papers. <laughs> I love it. But I, I just, it. I love, I mean, my car is purple. Um, I just, I love purple. Well, it's just listen, wonderful. Every, every, everyone knows you buy your purple. Merle, and, and, and we love it. We absolutely love it. <laughs> yeah, when I go, go in a store, it calls my name. <laughs> so, so now we're, 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 we're winding it down here. So how can people contact you for speaking engagements, community events, or if, you know, if, if, a, if a parent, uh, one of your constituents out there has a question, how can people contact you? Well, my, my email is very easy to remember. It's the same name as my radio show. Okay. My radio show is called It's About Justice. So my email is itsaboutjustice at gmail.com. Well, that's pretty simple for people to get in contact yep. with you. 
Well, yep, they can contact me through itsaboutjustice at gmail.com. Okay. Well, Merle, we've 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 we're come down to the end now. I just, you know, I just want to thank you for visiting with us today. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. And, you know, and like personally, like I said, you know, I, I I've admired you, and you've been a role model for me for a very long time, Merle. And I'm just honored to have you on the show today. It's been wonderful. I love talking to you, Carol. <laughs> you too, Merle. And I appreciate you inviting me, sweetie pie. Oh. Listen, honey. I, 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 and and I admire what you're doing. Oh, well, I mean, just you. you know, your 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 style is so beautiful, <laughs> and I just love that you're doing this podcast. That's oh, just wonderful. Thank you, Merle. Thank you. Well, I would like to leave our audience with a quote from my guest today. It's inhumane to keep setting higher standards without providing funding for children to reach these standards. Students from disadvantaged backgrounds need better resources and opportunities. I would like to thank our audience for stopping by today. We wait, appreciate- wait, 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 yeah. wait, Okay, okay, that's all right. Go ahead. I, I w- Jump on I in. I want to end with a quote too. Go ahead. Okay. I love spontaneity. This is this is this is the kind of teacher I was. Okay. And the quote is from Haim Ganot H A I M G I N O T T. Okay. And I first saw this quote long time ago in the Ann Landers column. Remember Ann Landers? <laughs> yes, I do. Mama read now it all, dear, all the time. <laughs> yeah, now it's Dear Abby. Okay. And I did lessons with my kids around Ann Landers they, they, and, and Dear Abby. They would love it. I would give it to them, and they'd have to um, read it and then figure out their own answer, mm-hmm. and then I would show them Ann Landers' answer. But mm-hmm. it, was, it was fun. But anyway, this is, this is the kind of teacher I tried to be. And this, to me, is the most important quote I have ever... I, I carried it in my wallet all the time. Wow. Uh, I cut it out of the paper. But okay. here it is. I've come to a frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element in the classroom. It's my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. As a teacher, I possess a tremendous power to make a child's life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a child humanized or dehumanized. That's what I believe in. Wow, Merle. I'm I'm choked up, Merle. That's beautiful. <laughs> For real. Yeah. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's what I believe in. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, I would like to thank our audience for stopping by today. We appreciate your support. You got me all teary-eyed, Merle. Well, I'll listen to you. (laughs) Please join us again as we continue our conversation with Cleveland residents who are making positive contributions to their neighborhoods in our city. Visit Neighborhood Connections' website to see all of our community engagement activities and opportunities. If you have a great idea and you want to do something positive for your community, contact Neighborhood Connections at 216-361-0042 or send us an email at www.neighborhoodgrants.org and like us on Facebook. Get informed, get involved, get connected. I'm Carol Malone, your host. Thank you for joining me today on Neighbor Up Spotlight. Neighbor Up Spotlight is sponsored by Neighborhood Connections and the City of Cleveland Cable Television Minority Arts and Education Fund in association with Bad Record Recording Studios. Executive producer, 
Creator, writer, host, Carol Malone. Co-producer, Lila Mills. Engineer, James Cananan. Photography, social media, Vince Robinson. We're just a homemade, handmade podcast from scratch. Please share our positive stories with your neighbors, friends, and on your social media. Thank you for listening. Neighbor up. And that's a wrap.